Grant Zirkel, a digital learning coordinator for the southern and southeastern areas. And I'm Katie Haywood, a digital learning coordinator for the western area. Welcome to Digital Learning, hosted by the Wake County Public School System, where inspiring educators provide insight into their experiences with digital learning. You can follow us on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, and Google. To access our show notes, visit us at dlc.wcpss.net. There you will find your local area digital learning coordinators who you can reach out to for support with digital learning. You will find our monthly newsletter, our podcast episodes, our lunch and learn sessions, and other valuable resources. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Digital Learning. We have got some special guests with us here today, and we're going to play kind of a little game, kind of, sort of. Um, we wanted to take some of the biggest questions that we've been hearing from teachers and, um, you know, people all around the district about digital learning and um, all the different kind of changes we've been going through. And we wanted to see how the DLCs would answer some of these questions um, and what solutions they would offer. So we're kind of playing a little uh, little lightning round here, if you will, with the, with the digital learning coordinators um, to see what they advice they have for some of these common questions that we're hearing. So let's take a quick minute. Um, if you all want to introduce yourselves, Hi, I'm Mary Clay Vick, and I am a digital learning coordinator from the southwestern area. Hi, I'm Laura Barnes, and I'm a digital learning coordinator with the southwestern area. Hi, I'm Wanda Hanley, and I'm a digital learning coordinator with the western area. Hi, my name is Erica Woodard, and I have the pleasure of being a team lead for the digital learning coordinators. So if you DLCs are ready for your first question, I'm going to go ahead and pose that to you and then you can respond accordingly. This would be a teacher perspective question. So as though a teacher was asking you this question, how do I provide different content for different students? One way to do that would be to assign different things through Google Classroom because you can make individualized assignments. So if students need a specific reinforcement, that could be assigned to them and student to student would not know that there is a difference in assignment. So that's one easy way to be able to do that. You know, Mary Clay, I really liked that suggestion and I was thinking that as well because so often um, we as teachers get bogged down in um, what we're doing that we forget that there's those little check boxes in Google Classroom um, that we can provide um, different content for different kids. Um, and so whatever LMS that you're using, whether it's Canvas or Google Classroom, make sure that you look for that option in that LMS um, to assign, uh, to, to differentiate for the kids. It's a great option. I think something else I'd like to add um, to that is the content that you provide, as long as you're still reaching those learning standards, you can provide a choice of the way that students interact with the content. Um, so whether that be uh, in a choice board, in a playlist, um, something that allows the students to access the content in multiple modalities. And in addition, you can also allow them to access content through a differentiated reading passage or a video, things like that. So trying to allow for a little bit more student agency and student voice and choice can be really impactful in how students interact with the content. 
I'm going to ask a follow-up to that kind of, Laura, you mentioned, you know, the choice board and the playlist, and we've also heard things like pathways and hyperdocs. What's kind of the biggest difference? Like, why would a teacher choose one over the other? Yeah, so I think it really depends on comfort level, right? So it depends on what you, what resources you have to use and provide with your students. So a choice board, I also think, needs a little bit more guidance from a classroom management perspective when you're allowing for students to go through and kind of make defined choices for their own learning. Whereas a playlist would be played in a specific order, um, but it can be played at any point. They can access the content um, at any point during, you know, their asynchronous instruction or what have you. Um, and then a pathway would kind of lead them through additional resources in a linear, more linear format um, than a choice board would necessarily. And station rotations, Laura, would also help to support that so that if they are going on different pathways or using choices and that kind of thing, those skills that would need to be extended or reviewed and um, that kind of thing would be available to be done during maybe like a teacher time with a station rotation. That would be a great way to su supplement that as well. Yeah, and that gets me excited because, you know, what Laura mentioned really lends itself to a blended learning model so that when you're face when we're face to face in the classroom, you can still use choice boards and learning pathways and playlists um, because, you know, that would provide voice and choice for those students and and enable them to receive different content from the teacher. So one thing we hear from teachers a lot is, um, you know, yes, they maybe they want to try a playlist or a choice board, but they, they worry about time, um, you know, and they're like, well, I, I still have to do this and this. So how can teachers create more time for their class without time machines? Without time machines? Well, gosh, no. Um, <laughs> I think that really the, the best part about choice boards, playlists, and some of those personalized learning um, strategies is that you do a lot of work from the teacher perspective on the front end, but you're able to really allow for more time to be given to the learning process on the back end for the students. So that creates more flexibility in a teacher work schedule because you've got students exploring multiple ways or multiple paths or diving deeper into the content prior to when they arrive to your um, mini lesson or, or in-person meet or synchronous instruction. So that kind of allows for the learning to go a lot deeper and it, and it ends up creating time. And again, I know that it's a little bit more hefty on the front end, but once you have one of those uh, kind of a draft built out or a template, it's really, really easy to continue to add content and replace content as you um, move forward with different subject matters. Another strategy I've seen that works in a similar way to create space and time for maybe deeper conversation is flipped learning. And flipped learning has been around for quite a while. There used to be a camera called the flip camera, and I used a flip camera to flip my classroom. And when you think about it, it's evolved over time, but the, the premise remains the same. It gives students an opportunity to watch the delivery of content multiple times. And then when you have your students together, you can move to deeper discussion 
and you can have time where they can collaborate. And I've seen flip learning during this remote and virtual time work just as well as when students are face-to-face. -face. So I really enjoy watching flipped learning to create a space for deeper conversation. And Erica, I really like that, um, that conversation about the flipped learning because another strength that we have working for us is the strength of our professional learning networks and teachers on the same grade level, in the same department, et cetera, they can divide and conquer the curriculum, those flipped instruction lessons that may need to be implemented with the students. And that is another way to help stretch time for our uh, very busy schedules. And we as DLCs just put out a exemplar video of a teacher using flipped instruction and blended learning using pathways and playlists. So what we'll do is we'll put that in the show notes for you if you want to peruse that. So how do I increase accessibility for my students? So I think this is a really tough question because the accessibility for students can be really challenging when you're looking at your content from a whole. So really trying to find ways that you can present content in multiple modalities, such as video, audio, written, things like that, that really allows for students to access in multiple ways. So even if, if I'm not a, a learner that does really well with reading a passage, um, I might do a really great job of watching a video and really taking in the content. So that's a great way to um, increase accessibility in your classroom in an online and an in-person headspace. Yeah, and to add on to that, Laura, one of the things that I have learned in working with um, multiple middle schools in my area that the um, middle school math department on their Canvas course has done a marvelous job of demonstrating accessibility. Like they've got the emojis and they've got um, video um, and the like they'll show different scenarios like Desmos. But what I really like is when they push out their math templates to um, in Canvas, the math templates have um, multimodal um, activities included. Um, and of course, you know, um, we can talk about immersive reader because so many um, platforms now have immersive reader. Um, I do know that um, the one one platform that we do purchase, um, Discovery Education, now has immersive reader in um, their studio boards. But, you know, Microsoft has done a great job with immersive reader and they're pairing with a lot of companies out there now um, because they know that all kids need this. So um, if you're not aware of Immersive Reader, definitely check it out because it's um, it can read the text to students. You can highlight different verb colors. You can do verbs pink and um, nouns blue. And there's just so much you can do with Immersive Reader. And um, I know it's it's being in and it's getting it's seeping its way into different platforms that teach, we as educators are using. And one of the things that I don't know that we always think about when we think about accessibility for students is them actually taking in the information. Something that we've really been digging into lately is sketch noting and how students take the information. I think we think a lot about how we deliver it. When we think about accessibility, making sure that visually impaired students can access it, 
But I take it, I take it a step for, further in that how do students actually take the information in? And I love sketch noting because it gives students a different way to think. Students who like to doodle and like to draw and that's where their mind goes first. If we allow them the freedom to really take their notes in a way that makes sense to them instead of a way that makes sense to us, I think that's very powerful as well. And something that comes to my mind that kind of ties back into as far as that question about time is when we deliver content to students, whether it be in a video format that we've created or that a resource we've curated or a text format, instead of live instruction in like a Google Meet meeting being the only time you deliver content, students that may not be present during that time or students that want to access it and be able to read through it at their own pace or watch it at their own pace and pause and things of that nature, I think providing the content in addition to just in a live meeting and other times asynchronously they can access it would be beneficial. And, and I think another conversation around accessibility is not just accessibility of content, but I think effective communication with parents and home life, like what is accessible to the students at home? Like, do they only have access to a phone? Or like when we're, um, when they're, when they're leaving school to go home, do they have internet at home to complete assignments or to watch so, um, a video? So I think that um, communication with home life, um, whoever that person may be, is um, essential to know what these students have, what your students in your classroom have accessibility to. And that brings you right back to knowing the students and maintaining relationships with your students. So those are all uh, just really great, I think, actionable ideas that teachers can use, um, you know, when they're when we're talking about instruction and like you've all been saying, delivering content and all of that. Probably uh, the next biggest question, if not the biggest question we get from teachers is how can they provide collaborative opportunities for their students, both online, you know, in person where, you know, we're pretty comfortable with that typically, but how can they provide collaborative opportunities for their students online or digitally while in person? Well, the county has provided some collaborative protocols and explained how those could be adapted for this hybrid uh, blended learning environment that we're in. So that is one resource. It's got ideas like the fishbowl and other things like that. But opportunities for participation in a collaborative Google drawing, uh, graphic organizer, or a Jamboard. Those kinds of things are great ways to help build opportunities of collaboration with our students. Is it fair to say that collaborative opportunities for students doesn't always have to look like students speaking with each other? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Because if you are collaborating on a Google Draw, you may be in the same Google Draw document, but you may not even be required to be able to speak, to be able to contribute your part if you're doing a jigsaw method of collaboration on a graphic organizer. And you are working together, but you are not in a Google Meet or um, anything like that at that time or face-to-face. -face. 
So very much so, yes. Yeah, and Mary Clay, even if they're in like a Google breakout room, if a teacher puts them in a breakout room, they may not talk in that breakout room. They may just be working in that collaborative document and they may be using the comment feature to chat back and forth and do like that little um, chatting So uh, by typing. And so they may not want to turn their camera on and they may not want to talk, but they're communicating just in a different way. Um, and in that aspect, um, like Erica mentioned earlier about, you know, the sketch noting, that would lend itself great to a, um, a Google drawing. And then some of the other ways even um, to collaborate in the classroom, right? There, a lot of the protocols um, mm -hmm. that Mary Clay um, talked about earlier, you can do face-to-face -face in the classroom and set that up um, and, and just really walk your students through um, the expectations and the procedures so that they, um, they know what's going to happen. And I always like to model a protocol or model um, a face-to-face -face collaborative activity uh, in the beginning, because there's so many great ones out there. You know, th we've got the research-based spotlight on strategies that you can use in person, um, you can use in a blended learning environment, or you can use virtually. Um, and we've done a lot of lunch and learns on those protocols as well. But I think getting students moving and talking um, and learning to engage with one another um, is going to be important as we move forward. And when possible, it's great to be able to have these collaborative groups to be able to be partnerships for more than just one moment, for it to be for the period of a project or something like that, to allow them to build the relationships between each other so that there's a heightened trust level among the, the collaborators. So that is one thing. One strategy that I've recommended to teachers in our area is that when they're making these collaboration partnerships to consider if you've got rotation still in your classroom, that um, you try to have participants in each rotation of the group so that somebody is always in the classroom as well as there are others still remote. And that will be continuing to change as we transition back into more face-to-face -face opportunities with our students. I think you bring up a really valid point there because I was working with a teacher who said that most of her students don't know each other. They're high school students and they've never actually been in the building and they've never met each other. They've never seen each other. They don't know each other. So establishing some collaborative groupings where students can work on a project together and then they get to know each other, it's in a different context because they're not face-to-face, -face, but it's that that's something that we've never had to confront before. And I think that that is an interesting challenge this year when your students have never met one another. And kind of, Erica, along those lines where you're building those or helping to facilitate those relationships between students, and kind of what with Wanda was saying, where the kids can be working in a Google Doc even if they're not in a Meet, um, that's going to go back to that accessibility piece too because if we solely rely on kids talking and communicating in person then we've dropped that accessibility to their team and to their group whereas you know kids kids learn and and do their work on all kinds of different schedules so if they can collaborate in a document 
I can do that at 3 p.m. when I'm doing my homework, and you could do that at 7 p.m. when you're doing your homework. Um, that's going to, again, increase that other aspect of accessibility of that kind of 24-7 learning and participation. And I think the use of roles would be beneficial to students. So, you know, having some pre-defined roles and even allow students to choose a role or assign a role would help them guide them through that collaboration with another student. And another great resource we have at our fingertips is our PLTs. Like when we're talking about collaboration, we can turn to our PLTs and talk about, well, where are we now with our learning? And where do we want to go? And so this, you know, best practice, um, you know, pedagogy of collaboration, um, what are other teachers on your grade level doing? What successes have they had? And just um, building that efficacy within the PLT to um, share out. So um, don't forget to definitely talk to your, your PLT members or bring this topic up in a PLT. I think another thing, Oftentimes we think about collaboration in like a, a big group project, right, or a big, but I think there can be smaller pieces that we allow students to collaborate, like peer reviewing um, and providing feedback to their peers as well, really kind of allows for that first step into starting to build a relationship um, with another classmate, but also really kind of developing their ability to effectively connect with one another. So even a, a little baby step of doing feedback back and forth with um, a partner or um, back even responding back and forth to teacher feedback, right? That really builds student capacity for um, collaboration down the road. So each area in the county has digital learning coordinators that can provide support to teachers. And so our last and final question here for digital learning coordinators is what are your favorite ways to help support teachers? When I work with um, a school or um, a PLT group, um, I like to listen first, right, and see what their needs are. Um, and then um, my go-to are the tools that we support um, through our Wake County um, you know, resources. What, what do we have? So I like to point out what we already have and what we know it works. Um, and then I like to set up an appointment with them and scaffold that. So, because a lot of times we work with teachers that um, they they know technology and they know their pedagogy. They just don't have the time like to get it done and they need a little help with the time and getting things done. So I'll work with them on creating a choice board, just working with a, um, a middle school math teacher and we created a choice board um, and she just needed some help with time. And then there's teachers that um, are just beginning out and so I'll schedule out appointments and work one-on-one -on -one with those teachers or I'll come into their classroom um, and I'll model a lesson. I love going into the classroom and working with teachers and students um, and modeling and just co-teaching with that teacher. So those are some of the ways that I like to um, help out teachers that ask. That's perfect, Wanda. That's just a perfect answer. Um, one of the things that I have enjoyed this year is when teachers have approached me and said, this is what I have done in the past when it, we were face-to-face. -face. I'd like to be able to do this with remote learning or concurrently teaching both face-to-face -face and uh, remotely. 
and just trying to help them to brainstorm ways to be able to take these good learning activities that they have done in the past and be able to adapt them for our current conditions. So that is a fantastic, but listening is our first important key, is to listen to what they need. Um, I would just echo what both of y'all said. I think some of my favorite things um, to collaborate with with teachers would be, you know, them having this big idea that they want to support accomplishing. And, and our real goal as digital learning coordinators is to support and scaffold your ability as teachers to provide um, new content or exciting ways to reach your students. So any way that we can really, really help support directly with students is always a, a, a thrill for us. And we we really, really, really thrive in being able to interact with you and your PLTs and your grade level and your department chair um, and, and really trying to bounce ideas off and see how we can build ongoing supports um, with, with each other. Um, and I think Wanda really, really made the point that being able to get in classrooms, whether that be virtual classroom, in-person classroom, that's really where we love. That's probably my favorite for sure, where we really kind of feel the strongest about because we can really support and coach and collaborate and um, connect the content that that you guys are professionals on with the you know digital background and digital learning strategies that we have from um, a technology lens. For me, I think one of the things that DLCs do the most is just help you see something differently. That even with working with adults or working with students, working with each other, our biggest strength is when we work together because someone else is going to see it differently than you do. So when you bring a DLC alongside when you're trying to plan for something, they might see something that you missed. They might have a great idea. You may have a great idea that helps spark them to have another great idea. And so it's someone coming alongside you that has some specialized knowledge who can help you approach learning differently and help you approach teaching differently and come up with different strategies and just different ways to reach children. And if you're interested in contacting a digital learning coordinator, the best way to probably go about that, if you don't know who yours are, is to go to dlc.wcpss.net. There you'll find the digital learning coordinators by area and their contact information. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Hopefully our listeners heard some new ideas that they could use or even some new ways that they could work with their DLCs. So yeah, thanks for being here. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having us and um, definitely reach out to, to your DLC. A lot of times when I'm working with teachers are like, I didn't know you could do that. And I'm like, yeah, we can. So woohoo. Thanks for listening. For show notes and resources, visit dlc.wcpss.net. You can listen to our podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts.